0: I'm also found at Kate Campbell Aus on Insta,
1: and I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta.
0: Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us.
1: And just one final heads up before we get into the show: this podcast contains general financial information only. Alex, welcome back to the podcast, mate. Thanks, mate. Good to be here. Uh, the um, the last time we spoke, not too long ago for us. Um, we spoke about at length about financial planning, the process, what goes into it, how kind of you got in the industry, and we answered some questions. Today, we're going to be talking more questions. And we've got a few to uh, get across from the community. But for folks who haven't heard of that episode going live, uh, not everyone listens to every episode uh, as much as we try and get them to listen to more than a few a month. Yep. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Everest? Yeah, so yeah, my name's Alex, and um, thanks for
2: having me. So I'm a financial advisor or financial planner um, working at a company called Everest Wealth. Um, so yeah, and effectively, we largely deal with clients um, that you would typically describe, I guess, as accumulators. So from an, an age point of view, if we will sort of want to put a, uh, a bit of a band on that, it's generally sort of people between sort of 25 to 45 that we that we typically um, will work with, mm-hmm. helping them with everything from Getting their first home, their first investment property, setting up an investment in shares maybe or ETFs, um, getting some structure on their cash flow, family planning, um, helping with the super, maybe their insurance, all those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, so one of the questions I did ask you uh, last time was like to step through the process end to end. But I'm curious, like as people go through this, as clients come in, whether they're singles or couples, they've got kids or don't have kids, I'm curious like what part of it you enjoy the most and who do you enjoy working with? Like, is there a particular group of like clients or people that you see come through the door and you're like, okay, this is gonna be good?
2: Uh, that's, yeah, that's a really good question. I guess in terms of what part I enjoy of it, um, I mean, I largely enjoy sort of the whole thing, really, because I guess if you break it down into sort of three phases, you've got sort of the, the getting to know you stage. So what are you looking to do? How can we potentially help you? You know, can we some add some value to your situation here? Um, and then basically agreeing on whether we can do that or not. And then if mm-hmm. that's the case, moving into the next step, which is where we get into the strategy stage. So this is where we're sort of Crunching the numbers, coming up with some different ideas and pathways, talking um, you know you through that. So, do you like this idea? Do you like this idea? Yep, I like a bit of that. But can we mix these two things together? So that's that's normally pretty fun. The the strategy meeting um, or strategy stage uh, of the planning process, and then. The final thing um, is then basically summarizing that in the financial plan and then you know, and putting it back to you around, okay, cool, we've we've added some things in, we've taken some things out, but I'm pretty happy with the five things we've got in place going forward. And then, yeah, we effectively just make sure those things are implemented correctly as well so that the advice is actually seen through from, from start to finish.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, I guess making sense of people's affairs because like you said last time, some people come in, they're kind of on the on the right path. Other people are just kind of going to outsource all of it. And some people you know, are somewhere in between where they're like, well, I kind of got a gist of it, but I don't feel fully confident and I need someone to sit down and make sense of all this for me. I feel like that's a big um, part of what you do as a financial planner is sit there and provide that expert kind of over the shoulder ex- you know, experience. Like, hey, this is probably the thing that's gonna make you more money or whatever. Um, for people that wanna work with you, they can head to the link in the show notes. Uh, there's a link there that says financial planning, just click on that and um, you'll be matched with a financial planner uh, and you can get in contact with the team at Everest. So before we get to the community's questions, cause we do have a lot ranging from investing to e- ethical investing and ethical money choices, uh, VDHG, so much to get to. I thought um, one of the things that we get questioned on a lot is like, how do you find a financial planner? Like how do you find a planner who is right? for you. And I guess, you know, there's so many, there's only so many steps you can take with the publicly available information, but I'm curious if I put that back onto you, like how would you go about selecting a financial planner?
2: Yeah, look, it's tricky. Um, There's less and less of us these days as well. So the numbers have been sort of coming down over the last sort of five Mm. years or so um, in terms of financial advisors that are active out there in the marketplace. The way I would approach it, I think, is how you would approach somewhat anything, I think. So if you're looking for maybe like a plumber or an electrician um, or, you know, a new accountant possibly, I think word of mouth is a really good way um, to sort of start. I think as much as possible, you wanna try and link it back to a trusted source, right? So it might be, you know, listening to this podcast per se, and you know, they're really sort of vibing and enjoying what you're saying and, you know, mm. think that, you know, you're all right. So potentially maybe that's, <laughs> maybe. that's a maybe that's a trusted source. <laughs> um, you know, Google reviews, um, word of mouth, um, I think is a really good way as well, um, potentially from an existing professional before. So maybe you have a mortgage broker or an accountant, which, which knows a financial advisor um, who is, you know, going to be right for you. Mm. But then I guess probably, yeah, leading into that as well, it's, it's first getting that, um, you know, getting a name or a list of names of of financial advisors that potentially um, other people had, uh, say, good experiences with, but then it's also making sure that that person or that company is also sort of going to fit, I guess, yeah, what, what you're after as well. So that might be like, yeah, the demographic that they typically work with or the areas of advice that they typically sort of specialise in. Um, those things are important, I think, to consider as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's... um. One of the things like folks will know that um drew meredith who's appeared on the show before and the team of water partners they're really only dealing with retirees right and so that's a very different skill set to someone who is like yourselves dealing with people in the accumulation phase not always but a lot of the time mm-hmm. and you might be a, you're a specialist in these areas right you see that these types of people couples young couples families every, each and every day Um, and so that's one thing I'll probably throw an extra thing is like if you do get a referral from a friend or a family member is feel free to try and test drive give a give them a call see if they'll take a a short meeting because I know you guys do that Um, people can book straight in and and get a 15-minute chat straight out of the gate Um, and one final thing is just Check the the ASIC website or the MoneySmart website. You can look up financial advisors and check their credentials.
2: Yeah, like you said, it's making sure they've got an AFSL and um, and they're registered on ASIC as well. So you, it's now it's against the law to effectively call yourself a financial advisor or financial planner um, without being yeah registered via ASIC these days.
1: Yeah, so go and check that out and. Um, see what you can do around you, I guess, follow the steps that um, Alex has just laid out and find someone because it is worth it. uh, As we talked about last time, there's so many details, particularly around things like super insurance, structuring, where it will save you time and money. Um, Okay. So the questions we got today are very, quite varied. I'm going to insert a general advice warning, even though people would have heard it at the top of the show, which is that we don't know your personal circumstances. And even though Alex here might be a trained and skilled professional in personal financial advice we simply cannot do that through a finance uh, through a finance podcast or through a video uh, that you might be watching right now so be sure to seek the advice of a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information and if we do mention things and we are like things like superannuation or Vdhd, which is a type of ETF, go and read the product disclosure statement and target market determination. That's TMD for short. Um, okay, mate. So the first one comes from Super dot 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 man, who says my wife is currently working casually while being a stay-at-home mum, and I work full-time. I guess a typical situation for couples starting a family. Is there any reason? other than to cover fees or insurance premiums, to split my superannuation contributions to my wife's fund. Upon accessing our super in retirement, is there any benefit to us having similar amounts in our respective fund? Or conversely, is there any negative implications where I may have a significantly higher amount than she does? If I play devil's advocate, if I send half my contributions to her fund and she does a runner, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm pissed that money up the wall, so to speak. Um, So I guess the question is like people know that they can split super contributions um, and there's heaps of literature online about that. But is that worth it? It's a
2: worthwhile strategy. Yeah. So a little bit to unpack there. Um, I think, uh, yes. So obviously to begin with, um, there are potential advantages on having more equal balances going into retirement than having one partner with a whole pile of money in their super and the other person with, with not much in it. So for example, the, the transfer balance cap right now is about $1.9 million. okay, so basically above that uh, in pension phase um, that money would then return to being taxed at 15% like it is during accumulation. So to make that simple, you know, let's say so you and I are a couple, it makes mm-hmm. sense for us both to have say $1.5 million each in super as opposed to you having three and me having nothing. So we'll save yeah. on tax in that example. The other thing I guess in here as well, which maybe is a little bit of a can of worms potentially and stuff like that too is, um, you know, if in, in this situation um, it seems the, the the wife is taking more of the um, at-home duties, looking after the, the kids and stuff like that, so there's obviously the consideration that if they're, not, they're not earning any money necessarily for that as well. So potentially mm-hmm. um, it is worthwhile well, maybe having that conversation that the super should therefore at least be sort of split evenly mm-hmm. maybe in that example to sort of make recognition of that possibly, if that's yeah. if that's your thing. Um, you know, the comment about <laughs> pissing it up against the wall. Um, <laughs> I think you'll find that, uh, well, yeah, for, for reference, family court completely looks at, at super and stuff like that as well. So, um, yeah, that's, that's definitely up for grabs normally yeah, in the case of divorce mm-hmm. or split or something like that too. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think, yeah, so to To sort of summarise, there are advantages from a tax perspective to have um, equal amounts um, or closer to equal amounts in retirement. And like you said, you can do that via a super split arrangement, which effectively allows you to transfer up to 85% of your employer contributions to your spouse for that financial year. And other things to consider maybe, um, you know, in this situation, if the if the wife is earning under, I think it's 37,000, it could be 40,000. 40, mm. um, check the ATO website on that. Um, you could put up to 3000 uh, as a spousal contribution which then the ATO will give you a tax offset of about 500 bucks, which is which is pretty handy as well. It's a free kick. Yeah, yeah, which can help yeah. for, for that example, you know, at least pay for some of the fees and, and the insurance that might be in there as well. So that sort of balance keeps ticking along.
1: Yeah, um, that's a great one. I think um, super equalization and these types of strategies make a lot of sense for folks, and particularly if one person does have the at-home duties. Um, I think personally it makes a lot of sense, and that's probably what I'll be looking to do. Yeah. Um, Karen Dipp who writes in, says, how does tax work on investment accounts? And this is a very broad question, Alex. People know generally, we've spoken a lot about it. We got a question last time about it. But just let's maybe think about, I don't know, investment account, like a brokerage account, just a standard brokerage account. Can you give us any general information about that?
2: Yeah, so largely when you... um you know, you have investments outside, um, you know, your salary. So generally, if you're if you're an employer, you get paid a salary. Your employer will normally withhold tax on your behalf and pass it on to the ATO. So at the end of the financial year, you've in theory already met your sort of tax liability there. So nothing to necessarily worry about per se. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, if you if you're investing in say ETFs or something like that through a brokerage account, and um, you know you make income off those investments via sort of a, a dividend or a distribution or, or or something like that, you are then obviously responsible to pay um, the tax liability on that income earned. Now, most of the brokerage accounts, um, a lot of the time, if if you put in your tax file number, that will pre-fill across um, into Mm -hmm. your tax return for you, which is always pretty handy. If it's a a fully franked dividend per se that you've received, you will get a tax credit with that. what that is, um, to summarize it really short, is basically when a company makes money, they pay tax, okay? Um, so basically what it means is then when they re- when they then send you their, their profits via through a dividend or, or something like that, that can come across with a tax credit, which means that you are effectively not paying double taxation, you might just pay the top-up amount per se that you need mm. to pay as per your marginal sort of rate. Um, does that kind of answer that? Is that kind yeah. of what you were looking for there? Yeah,
1: yeah I think so. I think that's what Karen was looking for, It's just generally speaking, is like you've just got to be aware of the income you're receiving and the capital gains. And I think some of the tools that people could use here, if they don't already, are things like uh, Shareside or Novexa. You just plug that in and it can help you record um, transactions or dividends that you receive uh, in your investment account, and you can produce a tax statement at the end of the year. Yep. If you're investing in ETFs uh, or managed funds, they'll send you a tax statement. It's typically, what is it like August each year? Oh, you would, yeah. If you're lucky, October yeah. sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. August being generous to them, like that's mm. quick. Um, but so you ten, generally have to wait a couple of months in order to do your tax return uh, in that respect, unless you know it all, all already, which is r- rare, but um, you generally have to wait. So there's heaps more information, uh, Karen. There's actually a guide on our website, um, Tax on Shares. Um, so if you just Google Rask Tax on Shares, it explains everything, including the pre-fill service that Alex was referring to. Yeah.
2: And at the end of the day as well, like as I said, there's great, lots of educational um, you know, resources available and stuff like that as well, which. You know, we would encourage everyone to read and give a try themselves. But potentially again, if you if you still can't quite figure it out you're, or you're still not quite sure, it may be worth just you know going to your local accountant and paying sort of 300 bucks to get, you, get your tax return done. Mm. Learn a bit how to do it and then potentially the next year then you can do it yourself as well because it is yeah. important that you do enter it
1: correctly. For sure it is, for sure. And the ATO pre-fill is not always 100% correct. So make sure you check all that as well. Um, Musing Money Morals, so this is an interesting name, writes in and says, how do you consider ethics within your financial decisions when your financial goals might include making choices against your morals? So for example, investing in BHP, which has fossil fuels, or using an investment property as an Airbnb during a housing crisis. Now, this is a really good question. It's probably my favorite question for today, because I've actually heard of people recently who have investment properties, Alex, who are strongly considering simply selling them because of all like the growing um like concerns around housing affordability access uh to rentals and these types of things like people that have houses that they kind of as a holiday house or a beach house they're actually like well yeah maybe i do just get rid of it and just put that in an index fund or something like this that's like one aspect of it how do you consider that as a financial planner
2: yeah, it is. Um, it's one hundred percent something that we do consider as part of our process. So when we're um, we're filling out our risk tolerance questionnaire, which mm. basically decides, you know, how much risk you want to take on versus return. And to sum it up quickly, uh, as part of that questionnaire, we have a series of sort of. Ethical questions. So basically, you know, would you be comfortable investing in fossil fuels? You know, how do you feel about X, Y, Z? Are you comfortable paying potentially higher fees for an ethical option versus you know, sort of cheapest and best performing per se? Mm. Um, and it, and then basically, when they come in for their strategy session, we discuss those answers. Okay, that's how that's how we we discuss those answers with you. Right. And effectively, I'll caveat by saying that everybody's different, right? Your ethics are your ethics. At the end of the day, um, you know. Myself and yourself, we might have very similar ethics per se, but they're never going to be exactly the same. We're never going to agree on, you know, every single scenario, exactly how we would sort of handle that or how we would feel about that ethically. So what we do, I guess, um, from a super fund perspective, okay, when we're, when we're dealing with clients um, that have, have opted for, you know, they want to see the ethical options per se, it's firstly about looking at getting the underlying investment um, Correct. So they may be a high-growth investor per se. So making sure that asset allocation is correct, okay. and then it's discussing through the the ethical options. So what what we generally do is sort of give um, you know present to you sort of three options um, that we think are, uh, are appropriate, and then all say high growth in this example. And then what I actually get um, clients to do, or what I what I present to you, is is their ethical charters. Because at the end of the day, like. Hmm. You know just to simply be or to say you're ethical right doesn't really make sense it's quite an ambiguous term um, I'm sure most people like to think they are ethical but again as I said before yeah. most people ethics are going to going to vary so if you're going to you know if you're looking to invest ethically it's important that you look at the ethics of the fund or the investment option that you're thinking about and making sure that actually marries up with yeah what you believe in ie for example there will be a lot of ethical funds out there which will have FMG, okay, which is a, which is a miner, okay, they do, they do iron ore, they dig stuff out of the ground. The reason it's in some ethical funds, though, is they do have a very, uh, they are investing a lot of money in, in green energy, okay, so mm. they're trying to do a lot yeah, of stuff yeah. on that's that's right, so they effectively, therefore, under their own ethics of that fund, deem that that is actually an ethical option, but other ethical funds might be like well they still dig stuff out of the ground so absolutely no way are we putting them you know um, in our mm. portfolios and that's again comes down to the personal level because you i might sit here being like yep i'm i'm comfortable with that because they're trying to do a lot of work on the renewable side of things but you yourself I oh, might be like but look they're still digging stuff out of the ground so that's ethically i'm not comfortable with that
1: yeah i think that's really good and we um when we covered this many years ago um I think, I think the figure that we had from a survey that we did was 82% of our community would take um, the ethical choice if it was available, but at the same time, they're quite happy to build a portfolio, even if they can't make all of it ethical, like it's still worth trying. Um, and I think that's kind of the state of play, right? Like you said, everyone's ethics are different. Like you have, I think... ASIC started to crack down this whole greenwashing thing.
2: Yeah, but- yeah, I won't, I won't touch that. But yeah, there are some, <laughs> there are, there are a lot of funds that are calling their funds sustainable or you know, green or ethical. Um, which then, mm-hmm. if you look at the, and that's why I would encourage you to look at the top ten holdings and and to really read mm-hmm. that charter, what they actually stand for. Because I have had instances um, with clients where they've come in and they're already saying an ethical option, and then what I'll do is yeah, run through the charter and run through the top ten holdings, and a lot of the time they look at some of those holdings and go, hang on, I didn't that's not ethical. Um, yeah. Why well, do I don't think that's ethical? Um, so then they've, you know, changed obviously yeah. as a result.
1: Yeah, and it's pretty easy to do. You just head to their website and a lot of the – you can really drill down into the detail on the ETFs and um, some of the funds. They'll tell you step-by-step step what they're looking for at what time, yeah. at what stage of their process. And the um, other
2: thing, if I can just add to that quickly yeah. too, like particularly in the super fund space, there will generally be quite a disparity in fees between ethical options and say, mm-hmm. you know, best practice options. So it's also having that discussion – you know, with yourself and sometimes again, you know, real life examples, um, you might see the difference in fees and go, oh, that's quite a bit more money to actually pay for that ethical option. Look, what I may do instead is actually now, say, donate some of my money every fortnight to my own specific charity, and I'll I'll make up for it that way, per se. I've actually seen that happen a few times, too. So, it's Mm. making sure you, again, you just look at the landscape, read the charter, look at the top 10 holdings, look at the fees, um, and yeah, at the end of the day, it is a completely personal choice in terms of which way you go.
1: Mm. The kind of governing body for this is RIAA, RIA. Um, You can go to their website, and they have information on some of the funds that have passed their process but again it's like it get tested against a set of rules and Hmm. um, that's what
2: and and those rules may not you know they may not match your rules right as well yeah
1: exactly and that's why I think it's better to refer to these types of things as sustainable investments because that's typically what they are socially aware whereas ethical is kind of I always define ethical as more personal and sustainability can be measured socially aware it's not as easy to measure but it's kind of objective um and so those those i guess labels are more familiar to me um there are some great there's some great information online we actually have i don't want to keep plugging everything but we actually have a free ethical investing course which is available on rask a few thousand people have taken that and it goes through some of the companies how to look at their if you're doing share investing how to find out like what is their carbon footprint um, all those types of things so go out and check check that free course out. Um, just quickly, I might ask a follow-up here. How about, like, do you find, uh, do you ever educate people on, like, ethical investing choices when it comes to, like, consumer products or charitable giving, like, outside of just investing in ETFs or shares? Is there other things that you take into account?
2: Yes and no. Again, it, it comes back to, I guess, the importance of, um, yeah, the individual in front of us in terms of what they're looking to do. So, yeah, I guess, to... That example I sort of gave before, in that I've I've had I've had clients before where they potentially want to go you know the cheapest and the, the best performing option, but then that understand that that's going to sort of free up some other cash flow that they're saving in fees, that then they can yeah pick yeah. their own specific charity that's that's quite important to themselves too. So there's mm. a lot of ways I think that you can do it. I mean the good thing in the the more personal investing space with say some of the ethical options like that fee disparity is a lot tighter, okay, because it seems to be a lot more competition. And I think we are now starting to see that in the superannuation space as well, Um, you know, with a lot of the industry funds now bringing out an ethical option and stuff like that too. Again, it's obviously important to check the holdings and the charter, Um, but I think we will see those fees come a bit closer to the more sort of standard options going forward too.
1: Yeah. Uh, Claudia wrote in and said, I've missed the shows in my area and I think they were referring to the uh, recent RASC events. Do you offer virtual attendance? Uh, We did for our Sydney event, Claudia. Uh, we will be coming back around town, um, chances are near you sometime in 2024. At the moment, it looks like we're going to be doing Melbourne in the first quarter of 2024. So that's the Melbourne event. Uh, Then there'll be Perth by the looks of it. Um, which would be great. We'll go over and see Alex and the team. Um, and hopefully Alex and the team will be on all, at all of our events. Um, that's the plan, hopefully. <laughs> that's the plan. Um, and then we will do somewhere around Brisbane or uh, Sunshine Coast because that was highly recommended amongst the community. And finally back to Sydney. So four bigger events next year. Uh, we might also do smaller meetups around town, but uh, in regional areas. Uh, I'd love to get to Canberra and Darwin next year in particular. Um, so keep... Like keep listening to the podcast. Stay tuned. Visit the Rask Media website where we've got uh, all the information on our events, and you can register your interest there. Uh, you can also just write into us and tell us where you think we should have an event um, in 2024. We've got a few big roadshows planned, so um, keep your ears to the podcast. Kevin wrote in and said, "This is a good question too. It's my second favorite of the day." I currently invest in VDHG as my only investment. I am 48 and thinking of adding something that has a bit more yield. So they've looked at the, the, the Vanguard high yield shares ETF, which is VHY, many people will be familiar with. So I can get income. Is this a wise move? Now I'm going to add a little disclaimer in here, Kevin. You've given us a lot of information. You've said how old you are um, and you've said you've only got one investment. Now what we can say is we can speak generally about maybe VDHG, and we can speak generally about VHY and what it's useful, for, but we can't tell you what's right for your situation, unless of course, you go through the financial planning process, in which case, Alex could give you one-on-one advice. I cannot, but Alex could. So um, go and speak to your financial advisor if you're confused about what we're about to say. In short, Alex, VDHG, thinking of adding something like VHY to it.
2: Yeah look um like you said we obviously can't speak to Kevin's personal situation so so I'll obviously speak broadly um, around that I think when you're having this this thought around you know growth versus income it's always important to think about your time frame first and foremost okay so maybe this you know uh, at, at 48 you're potentially looking to retire you know very shortly okay but 48 again is by no means old or anything like that so it's potentially you still plan to work for another sort of 20 years which is quite a decent time frame so when we think again you know, so, so first, of all, first and foremost it's thinking about time frame around sort of framing that per se is sort of 10 years plus I would consider sort of long term inside sort mm. of 10 to 7 years is more sort of short term generally speaking when you're looking at long-term higher growth uh, investments like shares or property tend to have always outperformed say a more defensive asset like cash okay mm-hmm. which is a more defensive asset inside that again it sort of depends there's a lot more sort of volatility so i know this is a long way a long ways in terms of getting into no, this no, question no. i'm just trying to sort of yeah frame it first and foremost because vhy right is more aimed at income okay so it's more of a defensive play however it obviously uses equities okay so you are going to get some some capital growth there that's it. Um, so it sort of comes back to again thinking of what you're basically looking to do. So I, someone who's looking to say retire or pause work or needs a passive income or more sort of certainty of money coming in, VHY, VHY so would be a more sort of appropriate product possibly. Whereas yeah, VDHG is more looking to potentially say maximise that longer term return because a lot more of the assets are going to be in shares of property and particularly say more sort of growth shares as well which typically don't pay as much income but you're going to get a much better capital growth theoretically um off those options as opposed to sort of vhy
1: mm. well i actually um i can relate to the situation um and I appreciate your response there framing it because it is important right it should start with the, the end in mind like what are you trying to get to yeah um And VDHD is a 90-10, so you've got 90% growth, 10% defensive, whereas VHY is 100% shares, um, and you're getting dividend-paying shares, about 75 of them, give or take. Um, The benefit of VHY is more so, in my opinion, in retirement itself because it has inside of it, it actually has a tendency to target tax-effective income. So it's trying to capture those franking credits, which means you have to hold the underlying investments for 45 days. So what it does is um, it's trying to benefit retirees who can receive franking credits but also want consistent income. Now, if you couldn't receive the franking credits, it's almost not as worthwhile. To be sure, like younger people can receive them as well. It's just not as prevalent in their investment strategies. Mm -hmm. And so what this means is like any investor out there, when they look at, Total investment return, which adds up the income and the uh, growth over time, you might find that VHY slightly does, like, slightly underperforms VAS, which is just the standard three hundred. Um, but if you think about franking credits as well and the need for income, it may actually, in effect, be a a good option to increase that income a bit. Um, one of the things, one one of the problems, I might add one more thing and throw it back to you here, mate, is um. I think, I actually think maybe Vanguard didn't really think it through. They, we did an interview with them recently with VDHG where I asked like, why are they managed funds inside of VDHG, not ETFs? Um, And they said, well, they just kind of weren't available at the time. Because one of the reasons that it makes sense to have ETFs inside, I think, is that in time you might be able to split them up. Um, in which case, like, let's say you get to retirement and you've got $2 million in VDHD because it's the only investment you've ever made. It might be quite difficult to break it up. You might have to sell some and incur tax in order to lower your risk profile um, or your, the risk of your portfolio. Whereas with an ETF, you may have been able to do a transfer out, which may have been more effective for some people. So I don't know. That's just an interesting thing I think about. But Sorry, I cut you off.
2: No, no, that's all right. Um, I think that's getting relatively complex, but that, that is a good point in that yeah, BD, BDHD is an ETF of managed funds. Um, it's, it's not an ETF of ETFs like, say, DHHF is as an example. So yeah. there are some differences in tax potentially in terms of how it's treated and... Yeah, look, VDHD, for argument's sake, protect, potentially isn't the most ta- tax-effective um, structure versus a yeah a more pure sort of ETF play. There, I was just going to add in as well that um, you know, given where interest rates are now and, and things like that too. Oh, good if, point. if if you are potentially looking to chase you know income, um, you know, you know, a high interest saver or or bonds potentially are maybe something to consider too um given Mm. that you know i think you can get i saw the other day in macquarie you can get like five and a half percent in their in their um in their so that's and that's guaranteed whereas um obviously you know vhy it's chasing yield through dividends but it is going to have that capital aspect because it is it's made up like you said of of 75 um aussie equities as well um Mm. other thing to that too is you know in this again hypothetical situation if you're looking to maybe add VHY then to your portfolio, you are potentially going to obviously increase your exposure to Aussie equities too. Um, Whereas, you know, VDHD does package it up quite nicely in terms of, I think they, you know, they aim to have between Twenty-five and forty percent um, Aussie equities, and you've got your international and everything else with that too. So potentially, that in that example, it could start to throw your um, yeah your overall portfolio out of whack a little bit there too.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a good point, and that's that's why, like in the early days, I was super passionate about VDHD being a great option, and I think it is. I don't think there's personally, I don't think there's like a major risk with it. I wouldn't think that, but I just think people want a little bit more control. Um, because of situations like this, like people don't start when they're twenty, they're not thinking about when they get to fifty five about sequencing out of like higher growth assets or whatever. Um, but as you get nearer to your goal, you might want to put in place other steps, like maybe you do put up your bonds, as you say, like bonds are providing really good potential uh, income return over the next few years, um, just like cash or term deposits are providing fantastic current uh, yield. So, doesn't always just have to be a ETF for ETF. That's a great question. If Kevin and anyone listening to this, um, we love hearing questions about ETFs, so please keep sending them through. Um, Mountain Man says, if I take out an equity loan against my investment property, the interest I pay for the loan, is it tax deductible against my personal income? So Mountain Man is effectively asking here, we've spoken about this loosely on the show before, but if someone has a loan, like in this case, it's against an investment property, I'm assuming what they're saying is they're going to redraw some of that and invest it in, say, ETFs or index funds or something like this. And they're wondering, because they're using that loan or that money for an investment purpose, is that tax deductible?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I think the assumption here is that, because they haven't really specified, but the um, the assumption here is obviously they, they use that that money then to invest in an income generating asset like Shares or property per se, um, and then if that is that is the case broadly, then yes, you can you can claim um, the interest deduction. The the ATO will will allow that.
1: Okay, that's a good one. Uh, and we are Mountain Man. We are going to have a few different episodes on this. I think we've got Chris Bates coming up on the show in a little while, um, who will talk about using this and how from a mortgage broker's perspective, they set it up and help people uh, redraw. So we'll talk about that more uh, in future weeks. But for now, anyone that's listening or watching this, you can send us your questions. There is a link below the video on YouTube, or if you're uh, just listening in your podcast player on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen, I definitely use Apple more than use Spotify these days. But um really I'm more of a Spotify now. Ah so interesting. We'll yeah. Discuss that later but yeah. yeah take it <laughs> off there. Um, it's interesting because on in our business podcast 65% of people listen on Spotify and on our finance podcast around 65% of people listen on Apple. Yeah, so right. it's kind of reversed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, don't ask me why. No rhyme or reason as far as I can tell. Maybe business owners are just just in love with the Spotify business model, I don't know. But um I guess there's two more questions that I've got for you, is how can people start working with you? What, who are you looking for? Like, how can people follow you? All this type of stuff. So uh, the
2: easiest way to um, to start working with us is, like you said, go to the show notes, book in an intro call. It's 15 minutes typically, and it is completely free. And we'll answer mm-hmm. sort of any initial questions you have and explain how um, it effectively works with us. That's probably the easiest way. There, um, mm-hmm. we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we have a website, all those things too. Um, and yeah, predominantly um, Everest Wealth is yeah we we work with with accumulators, so predominantly Gen Z and sort of millennials, so people sort of 25 to 45 is generally sort of where we, we typically specialize and, and who we sort of uh, enjoy helping.
1: Cool, man. I like it. A final question is last time when you are on the show, I did ask you for something that people can do with their finances right now. If you're driving, don't just do this before you, you park the car. But um, if you have five minutes of people's time, Alex, I've already been very generous in listening to the show and hearing us talk about finance, which is great for us and um, we really appreciate it. But if someone had five minutes right now just to make a positive impact on their finances, what would they do?
2: I think um, going with the theme of you know personal investing that we've largely sort of been talking about today, if you know if you are thinking about doing it, just yeah, throwing five bucks or ten bucks into any sort of the the micro investing apps. So, you know, examples would be, you know, your Raise, um, Perla Micro spaceship those sorts of ones just to get a feel for effectively yeah what investing feels like um, and the great thing about these micro investing apps is you know you can put as little as five bucks in and and effectively watch it go watch it move with with market movements and mm. just get yourself more engaged in, um, by yeah by putting in a tiny bit of money I think
1: yeah yeah I love that I, I love that idea and- um just the idea of kind of like starting now, starting small and uh, making those mistakes that we all will make about our emotions and what happens. but if you can keep it contained five ten bucks and you haven't already invested, why not? just give it a crack. It takes two minutes to to sign up with one of those. Um, so just go and do it. And- See how you feel. Don't,
2: don't put tens of thousands in there. Or like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, five five bucks or something like that to, to get started is, is is a great way. And yeah, you know, those apps are fun and stuff like that. They're well designed. Um, yeah. they're, not the, they're not the best on fees, but for $5, it's perfectly fine.
1: Yeah, absolutely it is. Mate, Alex, this has been heaps of fun. Um, thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks, mate. I am so excited to tell you that InvestSmart and Intelligent Investor are long-term sponsors of this podcast, and here's something I want to tell you about. The Intelligent Investor Select Value Fund is a unique mix of global leaders and homegrown small caps poised for long-term growth. The Portfolio Manager is Nathan Bell, a talented investor you may have heard on the Rast Network multiple times. The Select Value Fund is designed for investors seeking international diversification and Aussie companies with superior financial metrics. You can invest today at intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV offer. That's intelligentinvestor.com.au slash IISV offer. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Before you go, I wanted to share some things with you. Specifically, I wanted to tell you about the 10 ways that RASC could help you in 2024. As many of you know, Rask has grown to become one of the biggest investing and finance platforms in Australia. Across our podcasts, our websites, our memberships, and so on, we now engage around 200,000 Aussies, which considering we started in a humble lounge room on a Kmart desk, one of those old fake white wooden ones, I'm pretty ecstatic about where we are six years later. As part of becoming one of Australia's biggest platforms for wealth creation and preservation, we now have a very special position in the country in that we can bring you some of the best, most thoughtful, expert-driven ways to protect and grow your wealth. And I'm going to share some of those with you now. I've got 10 ways that we can potentially help you or match you with someone who can. The first thing that I wanna tell you about is the biggest step we've ever taken at Rask, which is the launch of our Rask Invest platform. This is a platform that lets our team, led by me, invest for you, primarily through low-cost, diversified ETFs. We'll have three strategies at launch, and every investor who comes through can pick one of the three strategies, being a balanced strategy, a growth strategy, and a high-growth strategy. The balance strategy focuses on passive income, and the high growth strategy focuses on longer term compounding. You will find a link in your podcast player to register your interest. We will be taking off soon. Number two, if you prefer to DIY your investing, you can join me and over 4,000 members inside Rascore. That's our full ETF and ASX Share Research membership community. You can join now and you'll get updated ETF portfolio recommendations every quarter, as well as ongoing ASX and global stock research. Every single month, we call them the all-star stocks. You get that alongside the ETF portfolios, as well as other members-only content. It's called Rascore. Number three, our first ever partnership with a business other than our own was a business by the name of Blusk, which has since become Flint Group. Flint Group is led by Chris Bates and Christian Stevens, two of Australia's most highly regarded mortgage brokers. Already over 200 RASC community members have begun the RASC plus Flint Group mortgage broking process. You can click the link in your podcast player if you're refinancing, investing, a first home buyer, or whatever. You've probably heard Chris on the show many times. Number four, you can connect with our most trusted financial advisors. Whether you're 25 years old, just graduated uni and looking to set yourself up or approaching or in retirement and you've got that nest egg you want to protect and generate a passive income from, you can get in contact with our trusted panel of financial advisors. You can find the link in your podcast player. It's there each and every week. Just click the thing that says financial planning. Number five, if you want specialist insurance advice, as Warren Buffett said, rule number one is don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one, insurance is vitally important, especially when it comes to your number one asset, you. Whether you're a single income household or a couple, and you just want to protect what would happen if you want to protect your family, if something goes wrong, you want to protect your spouse, if you lose your job, you want to protect yourself, if you hurt yourself on the weekend at footy, insurance is a way to do that. And I think the best way to do insurance is through a financial planner. And there's a few reasons for that. But one of them is sometimes some insurers will only work with financial advisors, but they can also be your companion as you go through the sometimes daunting process of getting insurance done properly. Sometimes you might not even know, but you're not even covered, even though you think you are. So get the right advice. You'll find a link in the show notes to check that out. Number six, buying property. If you're like me and you're thinking of buying property in the next 12 months, or maybe you've already invested and you're looking to downsize, getting the right advice and being able to build wealth through property is a proven strategy. It might be one of the most contentious, but I think that we have one of Australia's best property coaches in our ranks. That is Pete Warden. Pete is the host of the now super popular Australian property podcast by Rask, and he's also my analyst team's macro consultant. So if you're a member of Rascor you will have seen Pete's name around the traps. He's a property coach and buyer's agent, and he works with a select number of people each and every year. Just a note on this. This is not a commercial thing with Pete. Pete just has great services, so we offer them to the community. And when he fills up, he fills up. You can find out more about Pete's coaching in the show notes. Next up, tracking your portfolio for tax? I think you are because I think you have to. So we've partnered with Nevexa to help you manage your share and ETF reporting, whether it's tax or performance. All RASC users get 20% off an annual plan with Nevexa. You can sync your portfolio with Nivexa's software and it automatically tracks your dividends, your capital gains tax, and more. Again, not a commercial partnership. We don't make anything from working with Nevexa, but they do create some great tools which the RASC community uses each and every day. Number eight, want to run your own business? Maybe you already do. If you want more profit, but less stress, less time consumed, and less energy lost, get in contact. We have a partner business called Inflection. The Inflection Accelerator Program is a complete online course that helps you and a community of members engage and follow a proven strategy for growing your business. I'm grateful to be one of the coaches inside the Accelerator program, helping business owners right across Australia. You can find more following the link in your podcast player. It's the one that says coaching. Number nine, if you haven't already checked it out, join over 20,000 other people who tune into the Rask YouTube channel. It is completely free and you get notified when we go live and when we publish podcast episodes. There is a podcast on the Rask network each and every day, as well as bite-sized material that's less than 60 seconds or those really punchy tutorials and webinars that are just 15 minutes that take you through a really exciting topic, whether it's how to buy a property, whether it's how to pick a dividend ETF. Some of our most popular content actually just explains things like, what the heck is franking credits and how do I calculate if I've got some? That's on our YouTube channel. Number 10, if you want to be a better investor, a saver, a better partner with money, or just understand your own relationship with money, you can do that all of that by going to the Rask Education website and taking a free course. We've enrolled over 26,000 students at the time of this recording, and we're on a mission to get to 100,000 in the next few years. Rask Education is our mostly free education platform covering everything from budgeting and automation to the, probably I would say, the best value investing program in the country. So whether you're a value investor An intermediate investor, you want to know how to value Woolworths shares or you simply just want to understand what ethical investing is or buy your first property and what actually happens on settlement day, head to the Rask Education website and enroll in something today. It is free and it supports us because then I can come on here next month and I can say we've got 27,000 and hopefully we reach critical mass where we can help more Australians manage their money better. Thank you for listening to this long-winded ad. If you want to get in contact with me, you know where to go. There's a link in your show notes. Basically, these 10 services, even though some of them we don't make any money from, support RASC and allow us to produce these podcasts, attract the biggest and best guests from Australia and around the world, and bring them to you to answer your questions. Thank you for being part of the RASC network, and thank you for your ongoing support. Bye for now.